when it impacted and nosed over, it was the equivalent of a fire hose being turned onto your face with shreds of plastic and metal in that stream of water as it ripped through that airplane. And we immediately settled upside down with people hanging upside down in their seats. But looking back in the aircraft and see the, the plane fill up with water and I see Miffy in the front seat and she's struggling with a seatbelt and can't get it undone and the water just lifts up over her neck, over her chin and she, she reaches for her last breath and her, her face goes underwater and, and I've still got her husband who's vision impaired and I've got to take him up first. G'day and welcome everyone to episode number 33 of On The Step with that Mallard guy. I'm your host, Dan Bolton. On The Step is all about float planes and flying boats to help this podcast grow so I can speak with more people in our industry. Make sure you share On The Step on social media, tell your aviation nerd friends about it and of course, don't forget to review it on Apple Podcasts. Your reviews get this show out to more people and that means more stories to tell within our amazing community. To get in contact with me, my email is thatmallardguy at hotmail.com or you can follow me on Instagram and send me a message at thatmallardguy. Speaking of Instagram messages, I had a great message from a follower a few weeks ago. It was a really long message telling me how much he loved the show and how it had inspired him to get into floats. Now, I couldn't really reply to the message at the time, so it stated as a message request through Instagram with the intention to reply that evening, just like I reply to everyone who sends me direct messages or emails. It was such a nice message, I was even going to show my wife uh, as I use any positive messages from fans of the show to prove to her that me running off to the spare room in the evenings like a weirdo is actually worth it. Now, when I went to reply, I accidentally deleted the message and had no way of saying thanks to this person. So if you're out there, stranger, please get back to me again so we can have a chat and I can thank you uh, again for your beautiful message. Also, folks, before we jump into this incredibly powerful episode, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you all for being such great followers of the show. It takes a lot of time and effort behind the scenes to make On The Step happen. Right now, I have a 10-month-old boy, Finn, who is really on the move around the house. Now, couple that with a six-month pregnant wife. Yes, that will equate to not just two kids under two, but two kids under 13 months. Finding time to get these episodes out can be a bit of a struggle. Now, I know in the past I've committed to two episodes a week. However, for this podcast to continue well into the future like I want it to, that's not going to be sustainable, I don't think. So I'm not going to commit to any schedule other than hopefully an episode weekly. And if it's been a good week and I've got some stuff done, maybe I'll throw in an extra one here and there. I'm sure you guys understand. And once again, thanks for supporting the show. Folks, as you've heard in the intro, this episode is a big one. Today, I have on two guests, Pat Gibson and Ron Hink. Both of these pilots were involved in gear down water landings. One as a passenger, the other as the pilot flying. What you're about to hear are two incredible tales of survival. They are two dramatic accounts of normal turning to disaster in seconds. I'm very thankful, as I'm sure you'll all be thankful too, once you hear how detailed these recollections of the accidents are and how open they are about sharing these incredible personal stories. 
It's time, folks, to buckle up our seatbelts. Hold on tight and get going on the step. Right engine is turning. 12% fuel. A lot. Alrighty, welcome to On The Step. First of all, Pat Gibson from Melbourne, Australia. How are you, Pat? That's bad. Thank you, Dan. And uh, also from Florida, another person from Florida. Can't keep away from the state. Uh, Ronald Hink. Uh, how are you, Ronald? I'm well, Daniel. Thank you. How are you? Very, very good. Um, thanks very much, guys, for taking the time out to do this episode. This is an episode... Um, as you know, I'm pretty passionate about the gear down at water landing accident. I've spoke about it before. Um, but it's really good to have you guys both come on the show here and, and share your personal experiences. So I'm um, really grateful for that. Obviously, with aviation, we you know, learn from others' mistakes and, and learn from experience of others as well. So um, for you guys to come out and share your story in something that can... You know, it's uh, probably a challenge you want to talk to. We, we really appreciate it, and I'm sure the listeners really appreciate it as well. Uh, before we jump into the accident, I'd like to kind of get a bit of an idea of you, your personal background flying experiences. Uh, so why don't we start off with you, Pat? How did you get into flying? And um, was seaplane something that you wanted to target straight away? Um, no, absolutely not. I, I think... Um my trajectory in, into aviation was uh, was looking for the airlines, um, and you know I started off in South Australia where I did my training. You know my first job was uh, shark patrol, running up and down the coast looking for sharks, um, and then flying in in Australia. There's obviously the uh, the GA market where we do a lot of uh, small plane flying before we go anywhere near the airlines um, and then getting into seaplanes it actually happened in the desert where um, I was working for a company that brought a seaplane up to the desert uh, and we landed on a salt lake that only flooded once every 20 years as a bit of a novelty and that's the first time I really saw a seaplane um, and I thought that might be fun to fly yeah exactly uh, so, uh, so how did you go about getting your float plane endorsement and then were they looking for someone else to help out on that airplane? Absolutely not. No, it, uh, it only flew a couple of hours um, up on water up there because there wasn't, wasn't much of it. But um, I went down to Port Macquarie and uh, uh, had some connections there. Uh, met a lady called Judy and, uh, and, and she kind of introduced me to seaplanes seaplanes there while I was doing a biannual uh, flight check and um, eventually later on I went and got my seaplane endorsement with um, uh, down in Geelong uh, which is not far from Melbourne just down the road. Yeah right and then um, so how was that progression you know you, you said you talked about airline flying um, and then and then you went and got your seaplane endorsement there um, what kind of flying did you jump into then with the float plane endorsement? Did you did you use it straight away or uh, how did that work? No, um, like the regular job was uh, was tourists flying up and down um, Early Beach and kind of the Queensland coast, and then seaplane flying was a little bit of a novelty, something something extra to get into, um, and certainly a different a different way of flying. So I was I was kind of really excited about 
having a different style of flying. And so, yeah, I, I, I jumped into it down in, down in Geelong and I didn't do it. I didn't do much of it straight away. Yeah, it, you know, it was few and far between in, in terms of hours, lots of short flights. Had a, um, when, I, when I did get the endorsement um, on the seaplanes, we operated a seaplane out at Nelson Bay and we did six minute, six minute tourist flights uh, wow. <laughs> out of uh, out of Nelson Bay, which was kind of take off, go over to the lookout, come back down and and land. And it was uh, we were trying to establish a business there, and it was pretty, like, you know, we wouldn't do too many flights a day. Did you train on an amphib or a straight float seaplane? We I trained on a uh, an amphib seaplane. Yeah, right. And then going into your first uh, little, the job you were doing up there in Port Stephens, was that amphib or, or straight float as well? No, that was amphib. Uh, it was on a uh, an aircraft, Hotel Tango Oscar, which, um, yeah, it was a, it, it wasn't my favourite seaplane, let's put it <laughs> that way. It, uh, it, it also had an incident up at Port Macquarie where um, it rolled an O-ring and ended up in an unusual situation with Two wheels out, two wheels in. Yeah, I was in the aircraft for that as well, but uh, it was it was not mechanically great that aircraft. It yeah, uh, right. gave me lots of troubles. Yeah. Um, and what about when you were flying as an amphib pilot? Um, before we talk about y- your incident, um, were you ever concerned about the whole gear down on the water landing? Were you thinking about it much? Do you remember? Well, it's. It's kind of hard to say, to be honest. Like, gear down on the water, you knew it could happen, but you were constantly checking the lights. I mean, the, the training taught you to, you know, have a look at your at the aircraft configuration so that you, so that you knew it wouldn't happen. And there was also, I don't know, that's a hard hard question to answer. I suppose. Um, I suppose you do think about it, yes, but. You know, you you trust your instruments and you trust your uh, the config of the aircraft that you know it's going to yeah. be safe when you come into landing. Yeah, I, yeah, I know. You I mean it, it is probably a pretty hard question to answer. Um, I guess it's like a, a land plane, you know, saying, "Does he think about wheels up landings?" In a way, I guess. But <laughs> but I guess yeah. that's the whole mentality thing that I that I've kind of talked about before is that that mentality. You're no longer a normal retractable pilot. You are an amphib pilot and and like i said things could go completely wrong when when you believe that they're in the right position but um yeah it's just it's just curious to think about your mindset i know that was a very long time ago but if you were consistently thinking about or stressing about that that idea that you know the plane could turn over on the water yeah and it was an unusual situation i mean i was i was used to landing wheels down every single time and it was a bit of a it was a bit of a mindset change to be able to to have to think about it every single time of if the if the landing configuration is down it's the wrong configuration and that was that was you know it's drummed into seaplane flying um but it is a bit of a a, a mindset switch when you're under a stressful situation uh you know that's when it becomes quite relevant that you you know you need to have those processes in place and I know you talked about in your last episode you had a little mantra um, before you touched down on the water or touched down on the land and we had a similar one um, the uh, the grass is green and 
landing gear is green and the, the grass is uh, the water is blue the landing gear is blue and and that indicated that we could safely land on blue water or green grass so then you moved from port stevens down to geelong mate um just tell us a little about the flying you were doing down in geelong uh, before we jump into the accident later on so geelong had a uh 206 amphib flight plane uh and it was stationed down there in cryo bay right down next to uh, Geelong Pier and uh, yeah we operated out of there and again uh, six minute joy flights that took off and it, it was compete it's only competitor there was a it was a helicopter that did joy flights out of cryo bay as well but uh, tourist flying and fun flying um, lots of uh, tourists out there to want, that want to see Geelong and the Geelong Cats Stadium was uh, a football stadium sorry uh, was uh, nearby, so people wanted to see that. And Barwon Heads, which was where the aircraft was stationed, was you know uh, seven minutes away from the bay, so it wasn't it wasn't very far at all. Yeah, right. Now, obviously, those who are listening, uh, who are regular listeners, will be well aware uh, of my connection with Geelong, uh, yeah. being my old man's business there. Um, so Pat, you and I knew each other before. Um, you left the Whitsundays. We both lived in Ely Beach together. Yeah. And then you yeah. uh, you went down there to help out uh, Dad for another summer. Um, so, yeah, a bit of a connection there, obviously, for those uh, who know my story pretty well. Um, <laughs> but let's jump over to you now, Ron. And why don't you give us a bit of background? As I mentioned, you're a private pilot. So um, talk to us a little bit about your background at aviation. Sure. Uh, well, I, I grew up in a family of airplanes and pilots. I was uh, two years old when my dad would tell the story. We'd sit on the floats of his cub and go fishing, and I would instantly say, the fish aren't biting, let's go to another lake. So it was clear to him that I liked flying more than fishing, and <laughs> that was at an age of two. So from that point, you know, a little kid with dad and a cub, uh, Uncle had a single engine, high performance, ended up getting some multi-engine aircrafts along the way. I'm sitting in the right seat growing up. Uh, and then friends of the family, we have numerous friends of the family, actually, that are all individually in the airplane business of some sort, primarily flying freight for the automotive companies in Detroit. Uh, so with them, I had more friends yet that were uh, pilots and had all different various uh, types of airplanes from single engine you name it, to small jets and uh, got exposure and had really a fortunate situation to have several good mentor pilots along the way. So when I was a young guy and we had this accident, it was shortly after the accident, within a week or so, that the owner of the seaplane said that the best way for me to deal with this would be to uh, start taking my lessons. And that was at, I was 11 years old. So because he had a Cessna dealership and a uh, flight school, he assigned me to an instructor. And at 11 years old, I started uh, flying the 152 formally as a student and logging hours. And uh, from there, I went on to finish my private in college. Uh, there's obviously a gap there, and that's primarily driven by time and money. Uh, but went on to finish it when I was in uh, college, um, actually uh, applied and got accepted into the U.S. Navy AVROC program to fly fighters. Uh, only to choose not to go at the bottom of the ninth inning. My dad talked me out of that. Um, got my first airplane shortly after I graduated from college and got married, and I've had eight since. Um, various types uh, from 182s to Barons to Shrike Commanders to now a Bonanza. So 
I was able to get, you know, about 5,000 hours logged during the process. And I've got my uh, multi-engine instrument commercial uh, sailplane, single engine C, and, uh, and some cool time also in the right seat of several different uh, small corporate jets and turboprops. So yeah, amazing. Never flew, never flew for a living, but sure had a lot yeah. of great pilots who did and a lot of cool exposure to airplanes of all levels. Absolutely, mate. And so your uh, accident was part of as being a passenger, was it? It was. It was the uh, one of the folks I was talking about bought a dealership down there in uh, Illinois, and this is in the mid '60s. And this was a brand new uh, Cessna dealership, and had a big grand opening, and had the local hotel for the uh, big festivities that was going to take place on a Saturday night. Actually, put a 150 on floats in the pool of the hotel. Um, <laughs> so the the day of the of the event. Uh, you know, there's an open house walking around looking at all the various models of the airplane. And one of them was uh, the C, it was a 185 on amphibs. And uh, they were given rides in it. So I got in line with my buddy, who was actually the son of the owner, and got down to the last seat. We flipped a coin, I won. Um, so it's one coin toss that I probably wish I hadn't have won. Yeah, well. But uh, yeah, I got to take a ride in a seaplane. And uh, it was basically one of these rides like. Uh, Pat just explained just to give you a little fun in a seaplane on the Mississippi River, and it ended pretty abruptly. Yeah, wow. Um, yeah. So, did you ever go and do any seaplane training yourself? I mean, you, like you said, your old man had uh, yeah. the cub there, and, and you know, did you yeah. go and conquer that? I did. Uh, so I went out and got my. Uh, shortly after that, got back to Michigan, and my uncle, who also lived on the same lake with us, bought a lake amphibian. So I flew with him a lot in the lake, and then when I finally, you know became an adult and got my ratings and was flying various airplanes. I went to Brown seaplane over here in winter Haven, Florida and got my rating in the cub. And, uh, just before COVID I was scheduled to go back up to the middle of the Florida area in Leesburg and get some uh, training in a sea ray. And then also to fly a, a, get some hours in a lake because I'm actually considering getting a seaplane now. So I'm starting to decide really, what do I want it? What, you know, what's my mission going to be and what seaplane would work best for me. So I'm kind of, zeroing in on uh, a lake a sea ray uh and maybe a cub but most likely a lake well ron we might as well talk about your accident first then uh why don't you tell us about what it was like um back then in the day when you were in the line give us a little bit of background before the accident happened uh set the scene a little bit about you know what what the build-up was like well, you know, as I said, it was it was a long time ago, but it's something that's very clear in my head and seems like it's been, it was yesterday in many ways. So this was the Saturday of this big event at this uh, facility. A lot of people around, they had uh, they had a um, entertainment that night who happened to be a guy by the name of Hawaiian Abe who had his uh, hula dancers and music players, and they were actually going to be on the floats of the airplane, hula in while he plays his ukulele. And and he was there with other entertainers during the day portion of the event and got in line with me in that seaplane. So it's significant because in a minute I'll tell you what he meant to me. Uh, so we got on the airplane, pilot uh, flying the plane, Hawaiian Abe in the front right seat, and three other guys about my size and age in the airplane as well. So there were five of us. We taxied out uh, and we took off. I was in the extreme rear seat of the airplane. So I was in, let's call it seat five of six so it had an empty small seat next to me, the two other kids in front of me, and then the pilot, co-pilot in front. And the, the 185 as well, mate, that, that's that got a little small bench seat in the back, doesn't it? And that's where I was, yep. Yeah, okay, yep. It was, it was in that little bench seat. So sitting in the back, we took off on what was a normal takeoff, and 
uh, short little John over to a, you know a base, the final uh, landing on the Mississippi. And I remember very well um, looking out that back window and seeing the silhouette of the seaplane coming down on the water, and you know wondering what it would look like when it actually touches. And I also remember very well looking down at the mechanical indicator on the floats and seeing that there was a wheels up, wheel down indicator and remembering it saying wheels down. But having been a kid, kind of be quiet when I'm in the pattern in the terminal areas, I didn't say anything because I just figured it was for some reason I didn't know, didn't give it any more thought. Again, I'm 10 years old, right? What do I know? Did you have a concept as well of that, that uh, you know, what that meant at all? No. No, no idea the consequence of what yeah. that meant, uh, other yeah. than it was strange that it was wheels up, wheels down, and the wheels were down. Yeah, because uh, it's it's a very bold indicator on top of the floats. It's a slide window, and and uh, again, I remember that. And and as I said, I was watching the silhouette of the airplane to where it would touch the water to see how graceful it was going to look, but it was everything but. As soon as it touched, it was you know I I I've used the term that the airplane face planted and went inverted almost in its own length. That's probably not true. Maybe it's two lengths, but it's very fast. And when it when it impacted and nosed over, it was the equivalent of a fire hose being turned onto your face with shreds of plastic and metal in that stream of water as it ripped through that airplane. And we immediately settled upside down with people hanging upside down in their seats I remember the headliner with uh, a comb, a wallet, some change, and some debris that was on the floor of the airplane, now on the headliner. It's filling up fast with water at this point. I was the first one out of my seatbelt on my hands and knees running around in the headliner uh, trying to find where the door would be and how to get out of this thing. And the airplane continued to fill very rapidly. At that point, others were out of their seatbelts, you know, maybe one other kid, then another kid sequentially, you know, they all got out of their seatbelts and were all swimming inside of the airplane. And, and this seemed to take place in a matter of minutes, not long. Um, airplane was pretty much underwater at this point. I remember, again, many people swimming around in this little space. Uh, I remember getting into the back of the fuselage, what would be the aft baggage area, and the airplane was settling nose first, inverted. Uh, so the tail was high. There was a pocket of air in that back luggage area. I remember looking up and b- sticking my mouth into that pocket of air to get what was my last breath of air and seeing another face doing the same. I remember somebody trying to grab me on several occasions. Now, at this point, that pocket of air has gone away. I'm still swimming around now inside holding what's my last breath of air. Somebody trying to grab me to get a hold of me and I'm thinking they're drowning and I'm not going to let them drown me. And I just got to the point where I couldn't hold my breath anymore and took a deep breath of water and remembered it feeling like it was a breath of air. It was actually very relaxing, like, oh, I finally found air. But when I'm breathing this water and it's so vivid in my mind, it was the hydraulics of the air, the water going through your nasal passage and into your lung and exhaling it where it doesn't flow as smoothly as air. It's much, it's like pushing, you know, molasses through a tube. It was a, it was a strange feeling, but yet a very gratifying feeling, and I passed out. So the next thing I know, I'm lying on the bow of the boat, because a fisherman had immediately come over to the boat, and I was on the bow of the boat and, you know, regained consciousness and saw the face of the pilot, who had been cut up pretty bad, sitting in the boat, the two other kids sitting in the boat, and Hawaiian Abe in the water holding me, on that bow while they were taking care of me and getting me in there. So what had happened was the Hawaiian Abe guy, 
uh, obviously Hawaiian man, good swimmer. And this just blows my mind because I can imagine the Mississippi River, very dark river, not no visibility. The airplane's now inverted. The floats are holding it from going to the bottom. So it's arguably, what, six, seven feet deep where that windshield is. He swam down through the windshield. And in the 185, there's two structural bars that are on that windshield that you have to navigate through to then get into that cockpit and grab a kid, pull him back out through that windshield, get him up to the boat, and go down and get another one. And he got all three of us out that way. I was the last one. And he said he had me at one point, but I worked myself loose. And when he went back down and got me the next point, it was only because I had lost conscious that he could keep a hold of me and get me back out of the airplane. So needless to say, Hawaiian Abe was my guardian angel that day. And um, pretty amazing uh, pretty amazing thing that uh, I experienced. But what, what amazes me when, when people talk about the wheel down landing, and I don't want to get a hold of my, ahead of myself here, so stop me whenever. I just thought it's, 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 if somebody could only imagine what that period of five, six, seven minutes was and how what you said earlier so rightly when you said that beautiful day turned differently very quickly, it's a matter of nanoseconds to where it's, it's, it's not, it's uh it gets pretty ugly pretty fast. And, um, and if you can just visualize, if, if I can help just make people visualize what I experienced, if that even gave them an ounce more energy to give them an ounce more effort in their discipline and procedures in the cockpit, maybe it helps another, because it just seems like they happen far too often. Yeah. As I mentioned before, you know, we had, four in the states in the last couple of months um yep. and, you know two within 10 days so th- there needs to be a message come out there uh, and try and get these pilots to to follow procedures a little bit better and, and think a little bit more about what they're doing with with the amphibs because as you mentioned that's an incredible story mate and um as i mentioned before turning from such happy days you know three kids on board life's great it's part of this event and festival to um you know fighting for your life um Yep. It must have been an incredible, yeah, life-changing experience. Um, how do you go from, from having that to then thinking about buying a seaplane in the future, yeah. mate? Well, you know, as I said, my, I will tell you, by the way, that night the party was pretty festive. Uh, Hawaiian Abe was a, was a real popular guy uh, with bandages on face. The show went on. And uh, my dad, who was a non-drinker, I think that was the first time I saw my dad get a little tipsy that night. So he was celebrating. Yeah. Uh, and I can relate. I have children. So, you know, the, the owner of the seaplane, and, and again, they're dear friends of the family that owned this business. He told me, he said, the, the worst thing you can do now is be afraid of an airplane. He said, the airplane didn't almost kill you. It was a mistake a person made. And I want you to learn how to do things the right way and minimize the you know, mitigate those mistakes and see, you know, understand that, you know, this isn't the airplane's fault. And getting back in an airplane now and learning how to fly uh, and getting your license is the best thing you could do. And my dad fully supported it being a pilot. Of course, my uncle who was there with us being a pilot and all of our other friends said absolutely. So, you know, I got uh, lessons in a brand new 150 and, and it was the best thing that ever could have happened because quite honestly, a month, I mean, I'm 10 years old, you know, kids are resilient. A month later, it wasn't even in my mind. It's more in my mind now than it was when I was one month after the accident. Yeah. So I was, move, I was moving on to learning how to fly because the opportunity was there. Yeah. <laughs> and then what about the first time you went down to Jack Brown's there and, and did your flight plan endorsement? Was, was that something that was on your mind when you were sitting on the water in an airplane? 
Actually, it was before that. We did a, uh, my wife and I did a trip out to Key West to drive Tortugas from uh, Key West in a 206 on amphibs. And I remember climbing in that airplane, and that was the first time I was in a float plane on amphibs since the accident. So now I'm 30 years old, right? Uh, and I remember thinking to myself, I will tell this guy if the wheels are down, <laughs> yeah. if we're going to do if we're going to do water. And we did, we took off from the water and landed on the water actually. And I remember saying, I won't be shy this time. Of course the trip went fine. And, uh, I've been in many seaplanes since, and I always think about it. I do in land planes. I fly, and I'm always of the mindset that there are those who have, and those who will, um, in an M in a land plane of leaving your wheels up. So, you know, it, uh, I don't know whether it's that accident, but I will tell you that I think a lot about the configuration and landing. Yeah, and hopefully more people will after hearing it. Um, yeah. Mate, just back to the accident a little bit and, and post that, that flipping over. As a 10-year-old, you know, what was the concept like of, 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 of rushing out and trying to get out of it? Like, was it straight away it was emergency situation that I had to get out of this airplane or were you kind of sitting back a little bit and, and watching what other people were doing um, and maybe that feeling of, of someone coming to help you rather than you trying to find your way out of the airplane? Yeah, no, for me, it was right away, get out of this damn thing. I knew, as I said, I was the first one on my hands and knees on the headliner. Uh, and I was already looking for the door, but they said in the, uh, when they retrieved the airplane and went through it there, the door handle itself was broken off. I don't know whether I did that or somebody else did that, but I remember grabbing things like what I thought was the door handle and trying to get the door open. And it turns out the fuselage had been compressed and the doors weren't going to open anyway. Um, I would have never thought to go through the windshield. So I, I just spent whatever few conscious moments I had left find, trying to find a way out of that airplane. I wasn't thinking about anything else but that. Do you also think um, when, when you're sitting there listening to someone do a safety briefing on an airplane that you're going flying on, say like that one in the Key West, that you're yeah. absolutely paying a lot more attention to how to get out of an airplane, especially a seaplane uh, that you're about yeah. to go flying in as a passenger? Again, I, that experience makes me... Th- realize why a lot of these briefings take place and why it's important that you know where that handle is and where that lever is. It's whether, you know, it doesn't matter if you're sitting in the exit row of a Boeing jet on a commercial flight and I get the briefing from the flight attendant. I do look up and see where that handle is and where that door is going to go. I visualize that act. Again, I don't know if it's because I'm a pilot or because I had that experience or both, but I don't just blow it off like many people do in safety briefings and commercial aircraft. I do pay attention. That's good to hear. Yeah. <laughs> good message. Um, Pat, let's jump across to you, mate, and, and talk a little bit about uh, the lead up to your um, experience. Um, tell us a little bit about, you're obviously a commercial pilot at the time. Um, you know, how did the morning start or, you know, give us a bit of a lead up into the day of flying there. So I was um, down working for your, oh, I was working for your old man. He was giving me a bit of uh, help in building my experience in the seaplane so i hadn't hadn't been too experienced in the seaplane and i was helping him out for kind of the summer season it was uh, it was in january and so the day the day kind of started off as any other day we'd go down to bowen heads we'd um we'd go through all of our checks on the on the seaplane and then uh take off uh he would normally take off and then i'd drive the car and then land in cryo bay and uh, we'd, we'd meet up again and, and go through the plane and make sure everything was ready for the day. And then we'd start taking passengers. And on the day in question, 22nd of January, I believe it was, you know, it was quite a busy day. 
So we, we were taking a lot of passengers up. Um, I think we had a had a surprise long trip, which kind of went down down the um, there's a there's a water park not too far, so it kind of went down down there, and that was a bit a bit unexpected. So of course, in comes the question of I uh, do I need to land for fuel, and we made the decision that uh, that we'll land for fuel during the next flight, and that uh, that ended up being. Um, being the the flight that that we ended up uh, wheels down on the water, but uh, lifted off from Cryo Bay and I had two passengers in the plane, um, and then we landed safely down at Barwon Heads on the grass. So we've got the wheels down and we're refueling, and then um, I receive a call from uh, from your old man saying, you know, there's uh, there's another passenger ready to go, so you know, hurry up, come back. And it's like it's always the pressure of the seaplane, you know. Uh, it's all you know, flying for money. Plane's got to be in the air to uh, to tick it over. So back in the plane, and this is where it started. So as I took off from Barwon Heads, um, there was a helicopter that, um, as I made my takeoff call from Barwon Heads, he made a crossing call. So he was out in front of me. And uh, the two passengers that I that I had in one was um, one was Doug, who was uh, he was vision impaired, and he was trying to get kind of the last the last of his vision. Decided to take a seaplane flight and and see the see Geelong and Cryo Bay with the last of his vision. So he was constantly kind of moving out of his seat and undoing his seatbelt, and he was uh, he was a passenger that I had to. I had to watch and, and remind to put on his seatbelt as well. And, and his wife was in the front um, enjoying the day. She was, uh, she, was, uh, she was happy to be in the seaplane as well. But um, when you get an entertaining couple that are, that are in the seaplane, you can't help but, but chat with them and show them that little bit extra uh, uh, customer service, I think you'd call it. And uh, as the helicopter like, went past, I, you know, I pointed out the helicopter to them um but it also we didn't do the pre uh pre takeoff uh sorry the after takeoff checklist so i didn't uh lift the gear there and then so following the helicopter we went over and he was talking about geelong football club and how much of a fan he was so we went over the top of geelong football club and i showed him that and again i get on the uh i get a phone call from uh, from your old man saying come on put the plane on the ground let's go um, we've got a passenger waiting, so there was a lot of lot of pressure there, a lot of distraction. Doug was out of his seat again, like seatbelt off. Um, so I reminded him, put your seatbelt back on. We're coming into land, and with time pressure there, I just I, I looked down, I saw the angle of the boats, and I just thought I know exactly where the runway is here. So whipped it down into a short final and hit the ground and a very similar story to uh to you ron as soon as you touch the water you know that you've made a mistake and we were upside down and i was looking at the water through the windscreen and going i know exactly what's happened here but i suppose in in my experience my emergency procedures kicked in straight away i knew that i knew that the you know we had to get out of the plane plane could be buckled the water's going to come in. First thing, the first thing I did was open the door, 
And that seemed to seemed to make the problem worse because all it did was rush the water in. But I knew it was a good point because we had an exit. So the door was open straight away. The water came in. But when we flipped the plane, I, I, I opened the door and then I looked back at the passengers. And what I had was I had, I had Miffy in the front seat next to me in the right-hand seat. And I also had Doug. So Doug had, uh, had come from the back and ended up upside down on the controls in the front seat um, on top of his wife. So that was the moment that, uh, you know, we've got to get everybody out. So I've, I've grabbed Doug from the, from the seat and pulled him over the top of me and into the water. I knew he was vision impaired, so had to get him out of the aircraft. And we've got those two struts as well that connect the, um, the float to the, to the fuselage. And they're right outside the door. So, um, and you can imagine battling those in low visibility and trying to get out of the aircraft. It's actually a really scary environment. So, but I've taken Doug out, who was quite a large man, um, and I've looked back in the aircraft. And this is an image that uh, that that haunts me. Um, but looking back in the aircraft and see the the plane fill up fill up with water. And I see Miffy in the front seat, and she's struggling with her seatbelt and can't get it undone. And the water just lifts up over her neck, over her chin, and she she reaches for her last breath, and her her um, her face goes underwater. And and I've still got her husband, who's vision impaired, and I've got to take him up first because I've I've just got him. So I've taken him out of the plane, and I've lifted him up over the floats, and I've told him to stay there. And then duck dive back into the plane to get Miffy, who's who's now been there for, you know, probably another 30 seconds, struggling with her seatbelt. So I've undone her seatbelt, pulled her out of the plane, and then um, and then got them between the floats, um, got them got them out safely. And uh, yeah, it all it all happened very very quickly because yep. we had that had that door open, so the water just came in super quick. Do you recall, Pat, when you when it was your last breath as well? Um, I, one thing that I learned that in an emergency situation, I'm I'm calm, which is which is a good thing, and it's a good thing to know about yourself. But I was just thinking, I've got to I've got to get these passengers out. My last breath. Um, I was fortunate enough that I knew where the exit was, and I, I knew my seatbelt was off, and I was. I was confident in my ability to to swim, so I don't I, I don't recall my last breath, but I do I do recall being up on the floats with Doug, and just and taking taking that a big breath because I knew I had to go down and swim in through a door underwater, take someone out who was possibly struggling for their for their for their last breath. I just knew it was going to be a difficult situation. So I don't I don't recall my last breath. I was I was really in emergency mode and emergency procedure. But and there's no there's no real handbook or no real uh, you know checklist of how to save people's lives once you're upside down and underwater. And it can go horribly wrong. Thankfully, in this incident, it didn't. But um, you know, seconds if seconds had been wasted or 
I had been injured in the accident, it could have turned out extremely different. Um, yep. I'm great. I'm grateful that I was able to get these guys out, and there was, uh, you know, the the biggest injury was a black eye. But yeah, it was a very very troubling time underwater. Certainly not something I could wish any other pilot to be in. No, absolutely, and we appreciate you sharing the story. That you know, it's certainly um, giving me shivers down my back, mate, listening to it and. You know, only just imagining how incredibly difficult it would have been to be in that situation, and and like I, I've mentioned before, just just the incredible. You know, your day's going great. It's probably you're probably happy that there's lots of flying on down the waterfront there. That you, you're you know logging a lot of hours. Um, it's a it's another busy day, and I've been down there. The atmosphere is incredible um, down there in the summer. You know, this is just before Australia Day, a few days beforehand. So I could only imagine it's absolutely buzzing down there and and you're having a great time and then all of a sudden you know you, you're fighting to save someone's life just out of nowhere it's a, it's an incredible change of of scenery and and dynamic you know environments i guess yeah absolutely and it was an incredible day like the sun was shining it's one of those days where you think nothing is going to go wrong today like you'd expect the clouds to come over and for it to be um coming down with rain but it was an absolute stunner of a day and here we are upside down in a seaplane it's definitely not the not the best position to be in and sitting on the floats in the middle of cryo bay and you've got that that minute to think and i remember i put the life jackets on these on these two they had the life jackets the uh the like the fanny pack style life jacket that sits around their waist and you just put them on top of the um on top of the passengers and i remember i've got to inflate these because we're out in the middle of the of the water and i was really careful with the uh with miffy because when i when i did activate it i could see that she was in shock and i just didn't want like that was another thing that could have gone wrong like if there was if we had a second emergency out on the water um that was something i was really concerned about as well even just activating the life jacket i could see it put her in put her back into shock because she didn't know what was going on, disorientated, and you know, suddenly it's another emergency that you've got to deal with. And then, um, what was what, what happened after that, Pat? Like you're obviously sitting out in the middle of the ocean there. Um, you know, was there a stream of boats that came over quickly and to help you guys out? Absolutely, we had. Um, we, there was a, a, a passenger boat that um, had two diesel engines, and he said he just as soon as he saw the crash, he put. He, he put the um, the throttle up to full and he actually he actually blew up an engine on his way over there um, which is incredible and uh, there was also a yacht club as well that were uh, the Royal Geelong yacht club I, I believe it was that uh, came over and they they helped out as well and we managed to get the passengers in the um, in the boats and uh, able to get them back to the dock but uh it was a it was sitting sitting on the on the floats of the seaplane and i'm watching i'm watching three boats um you know full power coming towards me to help out and it's uh, really great to see the community support to um you know obviously see someone in distress yeah uh, to help out for sure and then what about post the event mate like how did you deal with you know that accident afterwards you know i can only imagine that you know it would have been great to to land this kind of job over the summer flying floats and and as you mentioned prior just just going through a different style of aviation and 
and enjoying you know being down the waterfront there and, and having a lot of fun with your flying there how did you handle the change from having that enjoyment and fun in your flying to then knowing that that had happened um there was a lot of damage to my pride you know there was a lot of I'd, I'd been through aviation, I'd been through mechanical failures, I'd been through um, other things that, that had gone wrong that, that weren't my fault. And this one was 100%, I didn't check the gear. And knowing that really, really put me on the back foot and really um, it damaged my confidence. It, I know when the incident happened, um, we got the passengers off, we put them on the dock, we got them in the ambulance. And as soon as my role as, as a pilot had finished, that's when, that's when the shock set in and, and it was, it was, I was devastated that was this the end of my career? Was this, um, have I, am I a bad pilot? Have I, um, how, how could I do that? Can I have another go so that I can do this checklist? And the reality is that there is no other go. You've, you've done it wrong. You've done it incorrectly. And on this occasion, you face the consequences. And those consequences could have been 10 times, 100 times worse. Um, knowing, that, knowing that you'd made a mistake, it really... Yeah, really damaged your pride and damaged your um, your belief that you were a good pilot. Yeah, it would have been incredibly hard, mate. And like I said, appreciate you kind of sharing those thoughts because they're they're obviously pretty hard um, to put out there. So you know, great work for that, and hopefully that inspires other people to 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 think more. Was that your last flight, Pat? You know, you you mentioned that there. What have you done since that accident? No, it wasn't. It wasn't my last flight. I kind of knew that, um, you know, that, that uh, you've got to jump back on the horse and, and get out there. And um, but before you do that, you've got to error correct. And I think I sat there and and went through my checklists, like you know, a hundred times a day for the next couple of days afterwards. Um, and you go over the you go over the incident a thousand times. Um, firstly, I went over it with your old man, and then. Um, with the ATSB and then you're doing it for yourself and then every other pilot that you meet you, you tell the story again and and it just you know you you solidify that you need to do the checklist and I did get in a plane again and I um, I flew some more tourist tourist flights in another 206 um, I didn't do any more float plane flying um, and it was just well because there's, there's not too many seaplane jobs flying around in Australia and unfortunately I uh, that was the end of one um, and it was it was the end of, uh, of, of your old man's business but um, which was which was also kind of weighs on your conscience as well you, you think well there's uh, someone's livelihood that's uh, that's changed forever um, or certainly in the in the short term. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I did get, I did get back to flying and I went and flew again and, and it does make you think each time you, you come in to do your landings and do your checklist, you, you get, you get more stringent, but you don't want to have to go through that scenario to be stringent. 
it, it needs to be done before anything goes wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Mate, you mentioned a, a mechanical failure you had there uh, in the past. So I'm aware of that ac- or that incident there as well. Could you maybe just share a little bit about what happened there and, and did any of those procedures or anything that you learnt in that experience kind of transfer over to this one? So, um, yeah, the one in the desert was uh, flying around Lake Eyre, which, uh, which, you know, floods every 20 years and um, I was flying a GA8 air van which is uh, built here in Gippsland, I think now Mahindra manufacturing them over in India. But um, that that aircraft was, um, we were flying it along and we were doing a, a tourist tourist flight and we were 500 feet over a lake, Lake Kalapanana, when the, the engine had a loud bang. The propeller stopped in front of me and and it seized straight away. So 500 feet over a lake, um, and I had a nervous passenger sitting in uh, in the right hand seat. And I, I let him sit up the front because he was an he was an engineer. And I said, "Look, I know you're a nervous flyer. I'll put you here so that I can keep an eye on you. Um, but don't worry, nothing will go wrong." And of course, that's that's the flight where uh, where we have an engine failure, and he being an engineer he knew exactly what was going on and i remember him him reaching for the controls and then knowing better and he, he actually sat on his hands without without me uh, having to instruct him to but once that had happened throttle up throttle down nothing's happening so you put it in you go through your um your shutdown checks but before that or simultaneously best glide speed i did a steep turn to the right um, and headed for the closest bit of land which had uh, like two small hills on it uh, and there was a small road in between so i i I aimed for that um, and was going to land on it but then the road started running out and there was a tree to my left so i did a steep turn around a tree and then um, and then landed on the Birdsville track facing, facing north. And I remember as I'm doing a steep turn around this tree, which, you know, was about 15 feet high, uh, one of the passengers commented that we're, uh, oh, we're quite low. This is uh, low flying. And so I've landed on the Birdsville track, and uh, it was about 36 seconds from, from top to bottom. Um, I, I estimate it wasn't very long at all. And I've turned around to the passengers. I said, ladies and gentlemen, we've had an engine failure. So <laughs> under your seat belts and out you get. And they all looked at me like, I don't, like you know, deer in the headlights. And I said, now, please. And, and, and they all got uh, suddenly came awake and took their seat belts off and got out the back of the plane. And so did I. And then I had a look at the, uh, at the engine and I could see the oil that had just dumped all the oil through the engine cowling and it was just dripping down the front landing gear and uh, opened up the cows and had a look and there was about uh, there was about a five five inch by one inch hole in the block where the um, fifth cylinder had seized and and blown a hole straight through it so yeah we were out in the middle of the desert if anyone knows where Lake Kalapanana is, it's uh, <laughs> no. it's 
it's miles from anywhere. And um, I remember my operations manager saying that uh, he'd got onto emergency services and they wanted to send helicopters from Melbourne, which, to be honest, would have been about a four and a half hour flight. So <laughs> we, uh, it was, you know, it was quicker for them to to drive up with a Ute from uh, from Maree, which is what they ended up doing. Yeah. And uh, we didn't see Lake Eyre that day. It's it's a it's a weird one, mate. Um, you know, a lot of pilots can go through their whole aviation career not having any issues at all, and and here's one pretty early on in your career where you've had to had 36 seconds to to land an airplane on a road in the middle of nowhere where roads really don't exist. Um, did that yeah. kind of sharpen up your skills, I guess, in an emergency situation, or did you find you were kind of just as ice cold? In, in that as you know as you were once the plane was upside down um, well I think that's where I first learned that in an emergency situation I do I do tend to be calm and and you know go into procedure um, fairly quickly and I, I knew I could trust myself um, in an emergency so I think when I was upside down on the on the lake I knew that I knew that I could handle this situation and I'd be calm under pressure um however i mean the difference being upside down on the water was i had to kind of sit and think that i i had done this this is this isn't a mechanical failure this is something that i've done and and how do i how do i correct that i mean with an with an engine failure like the one up on um up at lake air i know that wasn't that wasn't any fault of mine, so I could just deal with the situation and, and leave my own fault out of it. But it certainly did. Like you, you know, you look at your procedures and and you go through an incident like that and think, is there something that I that I did wrong or, or um, that I could correct? And yeah, you, you know, you, I remember after the incident on Lake Air. I took another flight and it skipped a cylinder and I remember the adrenaline just came straight back through my body and I stopped my commentary about Lake Air and, and I, just, I just sat with the plane and it, it must have been for about maybe six or seven minutes, I just sat with the plane making sure that it wasn't going to fail on me. So it does make you a little bit alert. Yeah, what, what incredible contrast as well you talk about you know, you probably walked away from that first accident uh, or that, you know, that engine failure with a bit of pride and, you know, geez, I did a good job there, you know, versus the the second one um, where you could only, you know, imagine the amount of guilt you said you had um, put on yourself because you said that it was something that you did, you know, it must have been an incredible contrast. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of, you know, I remember getting back to the pub at because um, the pub was where the uh, aircraft was stationed back in Maree, and I remember my body still being full of adrenaline, and you, you don't sleep when you've had that much adrenaline in your body. Uh, you know, you kind of stay up well past your bedtime. But um, I had that I had that adrenaline after the seaplane crash as well, but it was. I couldn't use it the same. I couldn't use it to say, you know, I'd done a good job. I had it was uh, it turned into shock and it turned into um, it. 
manifested its its way into 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 shame really to be honest it was a, a it was a shameful thing that that i'd done yeah uh, obviously mate you know you did an incredible experience you know incredible job after after the fact and and you, you obviously saved people's lives so you know well done on that fact obviously you didn't want to be in that situation to start with but um you know you've got to hold your head up high for that for sure yeah um ron just jumping back to you now um after you've had that experience and you've gone off and you've done some float planes, what kind of message would you give to, to people who are looking at getting some uh, or doing some flying on amphibs? Well, um, first let me just say that if I am in another emergency, I hope I'm with Pat because <laughs> it seems like uh, Pat is a kudos on the way you handled both of those situations when you were describing going back to the seaplane. I think of Hawaiian Abe and, and especially in your case, knowing that you may have been responsible for that, where it would have been easy to sit on the boat and complain and cry and blame it on everybody but yourself, which was kind of my situation with the pilot. You took responsibility to save a person's life. So good for that. Thank um, you. Yeah. So to, yeah. So to answer your question, um, you know, it, I don't, I don't know if it's as much advice that I would give to, and I've had, young pilots that are just learning and, you know, ask me questions about what would you do differently or what do you do about this? You know, whether it's a seaplane or if it's a land plane or if it's you name it, I'm just a person that believes in, you know, you should have a checklist. You should have a a sterile cockpit. You should learn to, you know, stop people from distracting you when they become a distraction because that's in many cases what leads to forgetting to do things. So, you know, if it's a seaplane, yeah, I can tell you what happened to me and, what the consequences are in a seaplane of not putting the landing gear up for a water landing, which is an item on a checklist had followed likely wouldn't have happened. Uh, but it's no different than the landing gear being down for the, for the land landing. It's no different than having your pressurization set. It's no different than many things that are on a checklist. So I think my advice would be sterile cockpit and checklist. Yeah. And Pat, what about you? Like you mentioned there a lot about those pressures from being a commercial operation uh, you know, with having distractions with people in the in the um, cabin there with you in the aeroplane, who are very excited people. I know exactly what that's like, and I'm sure a lot of people out there do, where they're running tourist flights with these seaplanes. You know, making sure that the passengers are having a great time as well. Um, to distractions from you know airspace, which we didn't really even touch on, um, being so close um, in your scenario there. What do you think you would pass on to other people in those environments where there's a lot of distractions? Um, and I think I think Ron hit the nail on the head when uh, I think one of the major important things is the sterile cockpit. There needs to be a point in your flight and every single flight where where you say to yourself, "This is where I do the checklist." I mean, I I in, during those short little tourist flights, you're obviously trying to give the passengers. Um, what they paid for and entertain them the, the entire way around. You, you talk to them while they're, when they're getting in the aircraft. You, you make a couple of jokes during your safety brief so that they're, you know, you can see that they're listening um, and you, you're pointing out stuff as you're, as you're doing your checklist. And, you know, you pride yourself on being able to multitask, but there does need to be a time where you, you stop and you concentrate and you um, you don't multitask, and you concentrate on the one thing that you're doing, uh, which is configuring the aircraft 
into the into whatever uh, scenario you're going into, whether that be landing on the sea or landing on the land, um, and that needs to be stringent. And uh, yeah, so your checklist and and that sterile cockpit uh, is, I think, is key. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's great advice. And uh, yeah, once again, guys, really appreciate you both coming on and and sharing your experiences. So hopefully, other people can learn. And uh, we can all help this, you know, easily occurring accident um, stop in the future. Um, do you guys have anything else to add um, before we, we wrap up the show there, Pat? Uh, no, thanks for having me on, Dan. It's, uh, it's been a bit cathartic being able to talk about it with, uh, with yourself and, uh, and Ron. So thank you very much. Awesome. And Ron as well? Yeah, same with me. Thank you very much. I, uh, yeah, it uh, takes you back in time to a place you remember very well and hearing Pat describe it kind of reinforces you can visualize each other's scenario, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, yeah. thank you, Pat Gibson uh, and Ron Hink for joining me on The Step, fellas. Um, appreciate your, your time and, and sharing those memories. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. And that's the show for today, folks. Absolutely incredible stories shared to us from Ron and Pat. Once again, I can't tell you how appreciative I am about them joining on the step to tell their personal accounts and stories. Folks, if this episode has left an impact on you, if you have taken away a message from hearing these tales, or if you're simply going to strive harder and harder to not let this happen to you, then please share this episode with other pilots, both seaplane and landplane, to get their stories out there. This is an accident that shouldn't happen. It's an accident that can be so simply avoided. And it's an accident that affects all seaplane pilots, owners and operators, indirectly with rising insurance costs, rising cross-hire costs and rising charter costs. If it could happen to Pat or if it could happen to Ron, it could happen to you or me. If you want to listen to another episode I've released regarding Wheels Down Water Landings, check out episode 26 where I talk through a presentation regarding the topic or check out the Seaplane Scares episode where another Wheels Down accident is described. Thanks for listening everyone and until next time, thanks for coming on The Step.